This is the friend season. This is the friend season. Ask Adelaide and Anna. This is the friend season of Ask Adelaide and Anna. Adelaide and Anna. Welcome to Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ilet, and we are artists and friends. And today, and for our next episodes this season, we are joined by friends of Ask Adelaide and Anna and friends of me. And me. This is episode three of season five of Ask Adelaide and Anna. Also named the love episode. And we were hoping for some more juicy love questions like we've had in the past, but uh, I think a lot of people are concerned about their career <laughs> and COVID and the art world. And so we categorize some of, some of the questions as love questions that have to do with loving yourself or caring for yourself or caring for others. Well, there is like a little bit of... Um romantic uh, conversation that will take place in this episode but as just sort of a romantic side note or introduction I'd like to say that I just um, got married like two days ago from this re from recording yay yay <laughs> so I hope that will sort of um, possibly shed some romantic light on this episode after <laughs> all and I just celebrated a few days ago my 14th anniversary marriage anniversary with my partner Lyndon so more love yeah so two romantically established people we are such an admiration when I met you I was like oh wow you guys have been forever <laughs> it's not quite I mean eventually it's going to be like half of our lives and then it'll be from then on it's more than half of our lives which is kind of crazy yeah what what has changed the most since from the first years of your relationship um, a lot has changed because just over time we've lived in different places and been through different struggles and we both went to graduate school after we got married at different times. A lot has changed, including like who we are as people, but we kind of changed together. We were just talking about this, like I've changed so much from who I was, you know, like being a super Christian. Now I'm like a vegan, you know, and I I'm, I'm, don't go to church and I don't know, it's just a completely different person. And there was just something at the core of who we were that was enough to be compatible with each other, even though over time we've both changed to be like, maybe in some ways unrecognizable from who we were at the beginning. Yeah. And sometimes that breaks people apart, but I think because we've changed together, because we've kind of, you know, usually just been on the same page about things and talked things through, that it hasn't. It actually made our relationship stronger. It's pretty amazing. In a way, it's kind of luck, even. I think it's luck, too. Yeah. Because that many years and that, that big of changes. I know. And and then a lot of, you know, like a lot of the things that stress uh, marriages are financial or what are the other things? Do you, you probably know from all your savage love <laughs> <laughs> listening? The mundane stuff. Boredom, I think. Money and boredom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just been like, interesting, I guess. We've managed to keep our lives interesting. And even, we were just talking about like, even when we did this artist residency in Kansas, in the not most interesting town, for me at least. We found joy in just like the smallest things. Like we had a meal plan at the <laughs> at the dining hall that the students eat at. And every day we just look forward to like, what are they going to have today? Is it the Mediterranean platter? Or, you know, <laughs> so just little things that we, we would find joy in and like share that joy together made a difference even during times that were maybe not so exciting. Mm. I'm just like, I'm listening. <laughs> I mean, just having started this journey, but I've been also really, really grumpy, so I felt kind of bad, like, starting out this um, matrimonial journey in, like, a grumpy place. 
Norway just like fully opened up. So I'm just, everyone is just like getting ready for COVID. So <laughs> horrible. it's just really, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just such a really, really weird time. So I'm like, yeah, not, not totally relaxed, but trying to let it sink in that I finally got my way and like got you got your way. I, re- <laughs> I remember from day one, you told me you wanted to get married and he was like, I don't know about marriage. And then you're like, I'm going to buy a place and you're going to live there while I'm away. And that's my commitment to you. Oh, yeah. What changed? I don't know. Maybe he just like gave in. Well, I mean, I sort of took advantage of... Um, because um, my partner, well, my husband actually, can't really can't stand parties like social, like big social events, especially where he has to sort of be visible. So now with COVID and lots of restrictions and like small smaller gatherings, I was like, I wanted to have my daughter baptized in church, and I was like, so what if we just like get married at the same time? We don't have to tell anyone, and I was sort of thinking it would just be my like my regular begging thing like and he'll be like, no 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 but then he was like oh okay fine I was like what really wow really you always say no <laughs> and he was like well as long as there's no not a proper party I'm down but okay that's great that's funny you say that because um Lyndon also doesn't like being the center of attention yeah, yeah. and a wedding would have been terrible like a a big wedding yeah that would have been against both our personalities yeah I mean I could still notice that he wasn't actually that excited I mean, because we just had ordered pizza after <laughs> after the service. So I could still tell like, he wasn't in a great mood. So it really wasn't like the most romantic thing. <laughs> but the ceremony was really, really lovely. And I'm sure we go out for a nice dinner one day. Yeah. And so were, were all the people that were there surprised as well? Like they didn't know what was happening? Yeah, they were surprised. So I guess I still haven't had like a proper conversation like with my mother-in-law for example like oh she didn't know either no some um yeah <laughs> i don't actually know what people think but uh, <laughs> it must have been a little bit entertaining after all yeah and i had like an excuse to buy like a nice top <laughs> <laughs> you looked nice so yeah all good so um yeah that's um a little bit of matrimonial wrapping for our love episode mm-hmm. not that love has to be in a marriage but you know that. I mean, we all know that. Yeah. But there is something something about marriage. Because to me, I was like, what's marriage going to change that much, you know, about how we are with each other? But there is something about being sanctioned by society that's like, I hate using the word husband, but I'll use it like as a weapon. <laughs> like one time, you know, like I sent Lyndon to go pick up my work from an exhibition. And then they were like, we can't give it to him because we don't know who he is or whatever. And I was like, he's my husband. And they were like, well, you don't have the same last name, so we have no proof of that. I'm like, I'm on the phone telling you, like, give the art to this guy. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, in general, I don't like those that word. And so it's like, I don't know. But you know what other people think of it and how they value it. Well, I must say, I think parts of it is as well for me for want to get married is that, like, now when I've, like, found my person, I married young before, a long time ago. And I just, like, hate failing. <laughs> so I just wanted to, like, do it again with the right person and do it right yeah yay okay so we hope you enjoy our episode on love it's, it's the, the friend season, season. <laughs> dear oddly and anna do you have any good flirting tips kiyoshi yamamoto is that allowed those days to flirt after this meet you i do not flirt i stop it at work i don't do that anymore i feel like me this colorful this queer 
to flirt with people lately, suddenly I can end it up in a me too case. <laughs> Never even thought of that. You still know that they probably always gonna break in the weak side. So I'm like, hey, if you look at me strange, I'll look at this side and like, hey, I'm not gonna flirt with those people because I don't know what. I mean, I can flirt with friends. I think that you should flirt with people that you are safe. Okay, should we just have two different answers for the one that the white people can flirt free with white people? But if you have a little bit of color, you should think twice. They can accuse you of something. I think where flirting goes wrong is when people don't know how to read other people. You say something and then if the person's like, <laughs> you should be able to be like, oh, never mind. I, in order to flirt, I think you have to know that the flirting is going to be welcomed. Well, but isn't that sort of what you're trying to figure out when you flirt? Poke a little bit, like what? And then, okay, how is that? Okay, twice. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You could flirt with your you could flirt with your eyes. I mean, don't like look someone up and down, but you can like you know smile at someone a lot. Like if someone smiles at you a lot, don't you feel like they like you? You have to look the person up and down. You have to evaluate. <laughs> I don't like when people look me up and down. It makes me feel... Ooh. It's two different ways to look up and down. I mean, you can look up down to someone and really judge this is what people do with me. You feel really bad. And you can look up down like, hmm, this can be fun. <laughs> if you are really interested in a person, most like if you really want to have, you know, if you want to mingle with them, then you have to really give a very good look and show that you are very thirsty. <laughs> but in a helpful way... <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's very hard to say, but I have stopped a little bit of this flirting. I know some gay friends that has been in big trouble because some guys that some heterosexual, very fragile people react and then make a big deal out of. And then you're like months discussing about this. And this person actually just have some flirtness. So after having been seen some situations, so I stopped a little bit, but when it's allowed <laughs> and freely, I feel that the best way to flirt is not to say so much. Don't say so much. The people who talk so much when they flirt is really bad. Mm -hmm. With bad lines and stuff. And I guess there's certain situations where flirting is more expected. Like if you're at a bar, flirting is different than at work, you know, or party if you're going out with a good very good opening normally i don't think artists should be together with artists so maybe go to a concert <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to two people who who are with artists <laughs> i was thinking about this and then i was like oh i must say i've always loved flirting but i think also as a kid that was often very like misinterpreted because i was just you know like making fun conversations or like creating like a good energy i i didn't often realize like that what i was doing was flirting or would be interpreted as like anything else but me like having fun but maybe you are natural maybe you are natural born flirt you know what i mean maybe you have a new um, i feel that i'm like this friend i need tips <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a natural born like you know because some people they are really good at flirting i feel that mm -hmm. they just have this on them but i think flirting if, if i find for example humor is like great like when people make me laugh or if or the feeling i get when i have other people like actually think i'm funny i mean that's very satisfying and that can be a part of flirting but then when i was thinking about it like how do you give advice to someone like just be a little funnier you know like that's uh, not that easy people who are funny or clever yeah i'm attracted to them yeah smell good though put a good cologne <laughs> 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 smell is everything
nowadays I've seen on some exhibition announcements or wall text, like this is a, I don't know the phrasing, like this is a scent free environment or something like that. There's like, yeah, people who have sensitivities to smell and it ruins their entire experience or gives them a headache. (laughs) So they're like, please do not wear cologne in this exhibition. You haven't seen that? I mean, no, we can't. No, we can't. I can't. No, no. How? How? Like, okay, this is now gluten free vegan and like smell free so don't come please do not come to my gallery <laughs> do not show up do not show up I, I mean i know how to work you know what i mean like they try i have been working the university men in the past years people has been really been loud about that like please do not wear so much cologne can be interfering can give me headache and then i think it's okay i have a compassion but if i'm going out i feel that you put a good cologne but at the same time if you come to an opening and it's one person is thinking you make no difference everyone's a little bit (laughs) (laughs) the artist environment can be quite nasty but i mean i feel that a good tip also for flirting is like fun make people laugh but also like if you really want to know someone you know i like this direct flirt you know mm. i mean asking questions like actual getting yeah so interesting like oh you know who i think are the best flirts babies you ever see you ever seen a baby that you don't know in public and they like peek around their parents shoulders and then they like look at you and they smile and then they look away yeah and they look back yeah. you are right now when i'm like going around with my baby on the bus sometimes i'm like okay now now who's she picking and then i'm like <laughs> checking out and they're like oh i wonder if she'll melt that guy or that girl and i'll just like follow the bus ride and be like hmm, no not working yet and <laughs> but usually by the end when we like step off i'm like okay she did it but Chi basically smiles a lot. To me, that's flirty. Depends where you are in the situation. If I'm flirting with, some, with someone, I hope they look at me a lot. So <laughs> they can spend a good half an hour in there. But if it's someone really creepy, no. Like <laughs> hotel breakfast, you know, like this hotel breakfast. I have a hotel of hotel breakfast. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like you are like doing the business. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can give a peek, but if you get five seconds, it's creepy. <laughs> hey that was but i mean uh, i don't know i feel that show a very good way to flirt with someone i think is that show that you are interesting you know what i mean like if you want to know a little bit more like oh really but she does stare way too much for an adult person (laughs) (laughs) there's like a limit for how long you can yeah look at people but smiling is still it's still good yeah but also it's the opposite. How you say to someone that I want to flirt only with you, not with a whole table. You know what I mean? Like sometimes at the table, you start to make jokes. A lot of people in there, people think that you're flirting with everyone. Like I'm directing this flirtness to you. Yeah, I think it should be like that. Like straight to the point. Choose one. I think it's more effective. <laughs> but I'm really bad at flirting. I'm bad too. I'm surprised that I ended up with my partner because the flirting was very aggressive. <laughs> and he's like, ugh, like he's the type of person that would just be like, get away from me. But it worked somehow. But really, it's such like a simple and kind of normal advice, but it's, I think it's so efficient. Like if someone shows like proper interest in me and what I do, who I am, like I, f- I feel so special. If it's done in like a non-creepy way, that's it. <laughs> Be really attentive in a non-creepy way. Yeah, when it's supposed to be, when it means to be, has to be, even with bad flirting. Yeah. (laughs)
Do you guys like to have a relationship with artists? It's only me who is against it. <laughs> I mean, I think there are other people who are against it too. But it's just like if I look at all of my, the people who are my friends, I would say 90% of them are artists. So it's just like the circles I'm in that it's I was meant to I mean I was in school when I met my partner but like you know I think regardless I would be meant to be with an artist yeah I find it easier than the other combinations I've done it sort of gives me less stress of being an artist myself right because you can be under a table in your studio at 8 p.m. <laughs> at at age uh, late 30s right and, and that... your partner's like cool <laughs> see you later <laughs> Now, my boyfriend, he's a teacher, like children's school teacher. And I feel that's so good to come home and don't have to talk about my work. And it's so good, like, just talk about something else or maybe just go to another scenery and don't have to explain. Oh, don't have to explain a concept. Oh, it's so good. His mates don't make these complex questions. Sometimes I have artist friends. I'm like, you have time for this answer because if we go through it, it's going to get time, you know. And I don't know. I feel that the time times I had a relationship with art, I mean, I told you guys I'm a selfish person. I'm changing. I'm really changing. But it was once that I want to be about me. And I was really like, think, no, I this week is about my show. <laughs> Next month, maybe, if I have time, can be about yours. So <laughs> I'm a gay guy, you know what I mean? Like, I'm both feminine, but I'm still a gay guy. So I feel I have this selfishness from inside. So I get a little bit occupied with my own thing. I'm so, like, I don't know, could not have two openings at the same month, me and my boyfriend. The same month? Okay, that's the limit. <laughs> yeah. Like when you met each other, was there a lot of flirting? Oh, I don't remember. I think I was drunk, really, really, really drunk and maybe took some dopes. I don't know. But anyway, I remember that I gave him my email. I wrote my, he asked for my telephone. I was like, no, sorry. I'm not that type of person to give the telephone and I don't want yours, but I can give you my email. <laughs> and I wrote very difficultly. I was like, this guy, if he really bother and he want to meet me next weekend, so he has to work. So I wrote like my email with very small letters and really crazy as an artist, you know, like really like rah, rah, rah. they make like a graffiti. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, never gonna see him again. What happened two days after he sent the email? But it went to my spam. So oh. he met me the weekend. I was like, oh, you did not answer my email. I was like, whoa. That time was not so easy with iPhone. So anyway, but anyway, no, I was not so good at flirting. I feel that I was yeah, just hanging with, you know, a gay single guy. I was hanging with everyone. Testing. I was testing. Test. Yeah. <laughs> I made a real good test out and then pick up the best selection. I'm kind of satisfied with my pick. <laughs> But giving out uh, a physical uh, note with your email, I mean, that's like a, could be like a concrete tip as well. It's like <laughs> hand responsibility over. Or Instagram. But then they see your whole, well, for me, I have a private account. I'm not, and I'm not flirting with anybody. But then they see your whole life and I don't know. I don't post so much post-wise anymore. And my stories are like more private than my post. But at the same time, I, like, I feel weird about people just knowing about me without doing the work. I feel like I'm too old to say this, but I think I really like paper notes. You know, like people give me their number written on a piece of paper. Very attractive. 
now we know, now everyone knows. You can see, no, this is how you get it, send in the paper. <laughs> no, I love looking at people's Instagram or you're going there, it's like, oh, they do barbecue sometimes. That fits me very well. Yes, I will definitely be part of that lifestyle. It's like, whoa, fresh press, that can be good. <laughs> up to that, I would like a filter coffee, but I can go to this too. You know what I mean? Like I make a little bit like, see my future i do like astrology i see the future by instagram <laughs> <laughs> i hope that people are flirting more in this time of covid because you know it's so much distance and everything is everywhere so i hope that people this is a very yeah. good question actually people flirt more do more flirting we need that everyone needs yeah. to flirt and you know smile with your eyes that's what i love the most about public transport Flirting. Yeah, so a, a little bit of flirting on public transport. <laughs> it's diff more difficult now, though, with like face masks and stuff. You can smile with your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best one, actually. You can see, but my eyes are so small. I don't think people. Mine are know. too. <laughs> <laughs> I have to step up this, this uh, flirting of the eyes concept. I wish I had big eyes. But anyway, people, I feel that collective transport is a very good way to flirting. But I don't know if. Is good if you stay too long in collective transport because you know you should have a life. Annelise <laughs> Corbin. We all have been in like very long relationships. Well, mine is not very long. Mine is like short. It's like less than five years. And you guys are like more than ten, both of you. Seventeen. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Who thought we would be good at this? I don't know. <laughs> Please help us, because we can't. When, like, uh, maybe someone submitted this to like bully us. No, I can answer. Please. <laughs> no, I thought about it a bit. And like my kind of advice is to kind of not care so much. I mean, it depends like how you're flirting, you know, or what the situation is. But uh, I often like just don't care. And it's just like easy peasy. Like... <laughs> when you say don't care, do you mean, do you mean don't care about embarrassment? I, I don't show that person that I'm maybe interested or something, you know? That's the opposite of flirting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it works. It's a process because like you don't show that you care or whatever. But then like when you are in the moment, you're very like on, you know, like you and very real. Attentive, eye contact. Yeah, just like and, and you're kind of like honest and real and like deep. Okay, so you're there and then you're not there. So when you're not there, the other person is like, where is she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is she not looking at me right now the way she did two minutes ago? We had such a connection and now. Yeah. <laughs> and you just like, yeah, like you kind of leave some like small like in the air, something, you know, and it always like comes around. Like it's just amazing, actually. Obviously, I've been... Maybe not flirting so much lately at all, but I am um, quite flirty though. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go out and try this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, I think it's something to be quite like, just be yourself and like kind of um, maybe not so interested. And then when you like have a chance, you just be very on and very like, yeah, like <laughs> kind of very like real, you know, and down. <laughs> and then I think it's a score. <laughs> I think some of my flirting is really immature, like like teasing someone, you know, like when in school, when some, teasing them. But then sometimes it gets a little heavy handed and then the person's like, did I do something? I'm like, no, I, I feel comfortable enough to tease you. <laughs> that's fun. That's really funny. I can kind of try to visualize it like that's cool. <laughs> what did I do? 
Anna, how how did you were you flirty with with Espen? No, because um I didn't sort of see him that way. And then all of a sudden when I realized he liked me, it like switched on so I suddenly was like, "Oh, him. I'm going to make him the father of my child." <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it, it was like I kind of missed out on flirting, kind of. But That's... otherwise, I think you're quite flirting. Or like, I feel like I've seen you flirting. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. And I love it. So when you're telling me these things, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to like, we can go outside again. <laughs> <laughs> you are, Anna. I think eye contact is a big thing. And Anna, you have intense eye contact. When you're talking to someone, you're like staring. Oh, no. No, no. It made it easy to become your friend. Because when you say things and you're, t- and you're talking. Because I was just stare at you. Yeah, it's like in intense so you're like oh you meant whatever you said like if you're like let's hang out like you really meant it because you were like let's hang out (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do an advice podcast (laughs) (laughs) however that could also be kind of difficult because uh people around me such as my partner will like i have no poker face so like in my brain my when i fly off which i do a lot it's like there's like no way to hide it Oh yeah, I miss flirting. It's so it's so cliche to say like to be yourself, but I I think that's charming, you know. Yeah, and if someone likes that person, then they like you, even if it's like terribly awkward. Like my awkward flirting, it worked, uh, you know, for my to get my partner interested in me. And sometimes just showing that interest, like Anna, you just proved it. Just you know, knowing that that person likes you when you somebody who's flirted with you or expressed in some way that they like you, then it makes you think of them differently. Like actually consider, like, do I like them too? I think. To be good at flirting, you also have, it takes practice, no? During, year, like, my, I don't know which years I was, like, most actively single. <laughs> but, like, uh, uh, meeting lots of new people is a great social um, practice and training. Yeah, it can be fun to, like, test out various flirting strategies. Now it's, like, if you get some kind of contact, you know, outside of, like, your own family or partnership or whatever you know and like you meet someone new and you talk like now covid times you know you get this total like this overtending you know i don't know how to say that i don't know super excited it's super excited but you get a bit like weird it's so intense <laughs> and it's like oh and i talked to someone in the weekend like and i was like you so nice i can't believe it like is he really so nice <laughs> but then i thought like oh my god like i have to chill a bit because like Well, it's just because I haven't talked to anyone for a long time, you know? Yeah. I think that's why I'm so excited to, like, meet people. Not going to be, like, so, have so many restraints. Obviously, like, I'm very lucky that I've been together with someone for so long and stuff. But it's, like, both. I mean, it's good or bad. Like, it's not just good, you know, when it's been COVID. You're staring at one face, you know, like. (laughs) You don't have the other faces to compare it to, to be, like grateful i don't know you can take it for granted oh my god like there is that person again and like oh my god like <laughs> i always say when we're when we're brushing our teeth together i always say here we are again <laughs> just it, looking in the mirror together just like a hundred thousand times <laughs> and it's like you know so well how i feel he always says too like uh, oh i know what you're gonna say like i already knew that you were gonna say it and that's a bit like, um, I think it, for me, it's really important to meet other people. <laughs> it is It is important to meet other people, yeah. I think that's the, some of the most fun thing like about flirting or meeting new people is that it brings up these like new energies and, and new 
sort of new types of chemistry or sort of in trying to figure out like who is this other person and that's something we'll hopefully have a lot of in the I pray for 2022. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> kind of long for this contact with others and some men- mental some mental connection. And it, it is like you said, meeting new people. So not as common now, but there is something invigorating about meeting new people, and that's why I also why I like traveling because I'm gonna meet someone I never would have met otherwise. But then you know that's been drastically reduced. Like I at a residency, I've been here for a year and a half, and I haven't met many people at all. And there's like forty more than forty people here. Oh my god. I know. So the type of experience that I could imagine that this would be, it's totally different. So it almost it almost feels like I'm not here because when you're somewhere new, you like experience the culture of that place and the people of that place and you know, you do things in that place and my life is so small, my home and my studio and I have one friend that I trust enough to spend time with. Like we take, you know, take a COVID test if one of us went out of town and then we are the only people who see each other. Like in we have our own two-person bubble. That's very important, though, to have like this one hug friend, you know. Dear Adelaide and Anna, my question about structures of care in the art world, what can they look like and how do we implement them? Khalil Robert Irving. People talk about the art world as a monolith and it's not a monolith. It's not one entity. It's a tree with a lot of branches. And all those huge branches have tiny branches that also have tons of leaves on them. So if we think of the art world in clusters, which cluster would you like to be a part of? And if you're not within a cluster that already has a kind of support system within it, then all you need to do is shift your priorities and shift your focus to be and negotiate your way into a space where it does. And it's who you decide to surround yourself with. I mean, you can ask Adelaide how many times I call her on the phone, you know, and it's like I'm trying to also build a certain kind of engagement in my relationships with others because I have an interest in who they are and what they're doing and where they are in the world and where they are in their life because that gives me space to learn from. Like I learn from Adelaide and I learn from my relationships. So, you know, I have like this very direct and personal space that has a has been situated around care and love and respect and developing and learning but if you're talking about like the huge power structure of the art world and trying to institute care into it it's like good luck because everybody has their own means by which they're in it in the first place it would almost be like asking you know a question about structures of care in the in the u.s government (laughs) it's like they don't care about you but um i think that's good what you say it's basically like finding care in your small community that you build for yourself because if you're thinking about an institution i mean there's things you can do as an individual who works for an institution but if the basic premise behind the institution doesn't fit in line with caring for people then it's never gonna do that you can't expect it to do that it can be an uphill battle if i think about the broad art world i think about art fairs and museums and big exhibitions and things like that and i don't i don't see room for care in that i don't think the people who are in charge of those things are gonna be the ones to care they care but they care a certain way it's not that they don't care So I talked about a very direct and like one-to-one relationship about care in my community of art and art artists and friends. But 
thinking about the next step up, thinking about me working with a smaller gallery on the Lower East Side in uh, Manhattan. Like working with that gallery, there was one owner and they had one associate. I talked to the direct to the owner and the associate quite often. And depending on my relationship with those people and what those people wanted to get from me, it could be a very caring relationship, but they're not your friends. Like gallery owners and and people working for galleries are not your friends. So you really have to focus on what you want out of the relationship and the dynamic of like exhibiting in a certain space. But in some ways that could have a bit of care in it, but it's not necessarily the homey, nurturing, love, compassion that you're looking for from your mother. It's, you know, or your father or your parent. It's a different kind of care that they won't disrespect you. They'll speak about your work correctly. They'll sell the work to the right people. And the people who aren't going to immediately take it and destroy it or send it to auction, you know, they they introduce you to the people they sell the work to and, and, and not out of fear that you're going to like start secretly selling your work to these people from their Rolodex, you know, so it's like you can develop that engagement with a, a kind of like self-preservatory care, you know, and a, and a relationship of mutual understanding, I think care is like this thing like people want people to do right and be right this is in the business of doing right and being right as Adelaide describes but the relationships of being in touch with certain people directly no matter what branch on the tree they're in that will always be some kind of care like somehow I met Esther Adler who's curator at the Museum of Modern Art for Prints and Drawings amazing person. I, I could call her on the phone and she would text me, you know, I can I call you back? And we have this dialogue uh, amongst each other. We have similar interests. Once you break that ice, don't disrupt the development of that conversation. Because like you were saying a few minutes ago, Anna, it's like, you can grow old with these people. The development of care and mutual love and respect for one another comes from time. And you keep in touch with people on a level that most people I know don't. You know, you like make phone calls. Me and Anna were both saying we have one friend that makes phone calls. We'll call you. Unadvised, no text message. (laughs) What are your recommendations for keeping in touch with people in a genuine way, in a way that, you know, you have a relationship that's beyond this uh, dirty art world? I mean, you got to think about what what you want, what what, what makes you feel comfortable. Like, I like talking to people. I like talking about what books I'm reading with with my colleagues. I like listening to them tell me about what place they've traveled to and what they're doing. Like someone I know just went to Hawaii. This is a good example. So I've had many people write me on Instagram and other social media platforms trying to like get back in touch with me now that I have this like newfound like presentation of my work out in the world. And like someone wrote me randomly from Leipzig, who I went to first year of college with. And she reminded me that I went through so much shit my first year. And she's so proud and so happy that I made it through and I am presenting my work in such a level. And I was like, I don't even remember this person. Or someone could reach out to you, has reached out to me on Instagram and is like, where do I know you from? I, I don't know where we met, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, we totally have never met. And then I posted a podcast, another podcast that I was on. And she was like, oh, this is where I know you from. I heard you on a podcast. The perspective I see from her end, I'm over here writing, hey, how are you? How's it going? What's you, where are you doing on vacation? Where are you on vacation? And stuff like that. And like, how's your studio going? And 
things like that. And the person is silent, never responds. I like said, hey, can we have a phone call? Can we connect? Silence. Go to New York. Wanted to invite her to my private preview of my exhibition. Silent. So it's like you have to be willing to navigate and pay attention to what other people are also willing to give you. If this isn't out of mutual respect, like a lot of people that I call who never call me back, I'm not calling them anymore. I have to have more respect for my own time. It's also recognizing what you want out of it and finding places where it does exist. And that in terms of the question, but also thinking about staying in touch. I write emails, I make phone calls. Sometimes if it's really special, I'll write a letter or a postcard. I mean, I'm in, immensely busy as over the last four years, my life has like gotten tremendously more busy on a daily day basis. And I have hundreds of emails that I get a week. When I give time to call someone, it really means a lot. And I think I also share with people who are willing to share with me some of their time, like Esther Adler, the curator of prints and drawings, one of the 14 or 12 prints and drawings curators there are at the Museum of Modern Art, when she's willing to give me time, I show her that I also care and give a damn that she's sharing that time with me. How do you receive, but also how do you give when someone is giving to you too? That's a huge part about staying in touch. Espen Birkedal. So actually before Espen replies, maybe can you say something about Adelaide as like structures of care, this term? I only sort of learned about it in art context and I've never heard about it in Norwegian, for example. When I read this, I think structures of care means being thoughtful about audience and uh, the people who are coming to the show, the people who are exhibiting, it's kind of the opposite of what the art, a lot of the art world is, which is like really a hungry monster. Exploitation. Yeah, exploitative. So it's more for the public to care about the viewer? Well, like, I think it goes all directions, but it's isn't it about like good places to be for people, allowing like, people space and people with different abilities or like perspectives, but, like making sort of... I guess it would be all of it. And I guess the, the question's asking what, what can they look like? So, you know, if you're talking about disabilities, that's making everything accessible, having different points of access to exhibitions like whether it's audio or larger text or additional information in a different format guided tours things for kids things for people that have restrictions with mobility and then if you're talking about the way you treat artists maybe it comes around to like fair pay contracts what else could be care for an artist the government how they True. Funding. It's really such an enormous question because mm. there are like so many levels to address. Yeah. Stability would be another thing, I think, for artists. What did you think of when, because I, I tr tried to sort of explain my, my Norwegian version of structures of care to Espen. What did you think of? I thought it was about community, like arts community, how to like include everyone in the same community, like are the, art, are the artists to function as a group sort of like high school as a comic artist do you feel like a lot of times you are like put in a different category or not included in conversations um no not really not there in stavanger oh that's good but you used to feel that way or but but when i like started to go to openings and talk to artists and stuff they were really including me quickly 
is the first like subculture that I feel I'm getting accepted to. So I was embracing it right away. And then I tried to do this, like make comics about not being that included, <laughs> just to be like, make it more funny. Yeah, but then again, I've, I've felt like, oh, okay, so fine art and like people that has, has their masters in art, fine art and stuff. That's something completely different than what I do. To be like, try to figure like, how can I be in the same level as them? That that was the struggle, I guess. And I couldn't like accept myself as an artist because because I hadn't had the schooling and I hadn't had like uh, the I, the research or I just used like a pencil and draw on a paper and do like comics about my life and exaggerate. So. <laughs> It's so completely different, I feel. I found that the, that the art world can be snobby, so I was wondering about that. But it's good. I think that's one of the biggest structures of care, is feeling accepted and appreciated and listened to by your, your own yeah. community. You compared it, uh, like, an arts community can be a little bit compared to high school. Because, so for example, we live in, like, in a town, a small city in Norway. So it's sort of, you know, everyone knows who everyone is. Yeah, there is some kind of hierarchy. Like, you can say that there isn't, but there but there, there are different groups, groups, and there are some people that talk to each other, other people don't talk to each other. And so it's like this little, um, it is kind of this little high school, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, definitely. Because they are like cliques. There's people that uh, work together better, talk to together, and like, and they, they there's established and uh, what's the word for not established again? Unestablished. Oh, emerging. <laughs> yeah. So they they are like two different groups also. But for me personally, I don't. I didn't. I I guess people didn't see me as a competition because since I was not trying to get exhibitions really and not I'm not um, trying to get grants or I'm just a guy that hangs around these people and make comics <laughs> about them and make podcasts about them. Oh, so actually they love it because... <laughs> I gave them um, more, they... a lot of uh, attention. <laughs> attention. So you, maybe you have like a functional care <laughs> in the local art scene. <laughs> just like invite them to your podcast and uh, make drawings. And so, some, sometime I felt like I was like a mascot for like the art scene in Stoninger. Just like it's dummy that that was there on openings and drank yeah. their wine and like had the little laughs and yeah, yeah I guess that was my function. Then I had got some power and had like a because <laughs> uh, since I'm also uh, uh, running a space now or with some other people like in the board, and then then suddenly things changed because then people oh can I have an exhibition at your space and. Yeah, I know you have to apply. Like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly, I'm not the. All of a sudden, the mascot isn't that cute anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mascot got power. <laughs> you don't want to be rejected by a mascot. <laughs> it is interesting to see how power changes things. Um, in terms of running a space, how do you, as an artist, how do you think of things differently? Because when you run a space, you get to make decisions that could be different than what exists already. What are some structures of care? We, we are really focusing on like good contemporary artists coming to Stavanger or showing stuff. And uh, we are also allowing the artists or allowing and saying, just making maybe them to do everything themselves, like occupying like the space and deciding how they want to um, 
have their exhibition and when. In what ways could you say that the space uh, cares? Um, we have wine <laughs> when it's allowed, and um, sometimes like snacks and stuff. And that's that's a that sounds like a big deal to me in Norway because I know alcohol is so expensive. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Here it's like a bottle for you can get a bottle for three dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's really really cheap for us. No, but it's it's that and and we are trying to be like um, open to people coming in to say hello and grab a, something here to to drink and here's the artist because the artist is there maybe that's a care of a thing. Yeah, but I'm just thinking of how well the space like worked throughout the years to to get more and more money to pay the artists who are coming that's mm. i think that's uh sort of a little bit more long-term maybe long-term care than wa- uh, free wine i think the combination is crucial though free wine and good pay for the artists yeah but we we, we are really i think we're really um <laughs> nice with the artists also that sounds simple but that's a lot that's a lot because sometimes people can be so thought thoughtless or not not welcoming, in the art world especially. Like I went to New York a few months ago, and you walk in a gallery, and the person at the desk doesn't even look glance at you. Yeah, it's like I'm the only person in here. Can't you say hi and just tell me like, oh, we have a you know just some friendly something. No, but we we are trying to say that we are like the artists friendly art space also, because. Uh, we we really we don't like have any salary for ourselves because we want to give the artists as much as they can have and we tr- try to get the best equipment for the money we get for funding and yeah and we don't use that equipment ourselves it is for the artists like these uh, projectors and big screen TVs and uh, and like sound systems so that's a type of care then mm-hmm. yeah. As parents, what would be some type of uh, structure of care that in the art that the art world could create that you think would help you continue your career in an easier way? Can you take that one, Anna? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't noticed this that much before, but um, with a small child, it's really important for me to be able to, you know, like bring my partner and my child to many places, whether it is to exhibit or do a residency whatever um so for example um i did a residency in sweden this summer which was fantastic it was during while i was pregnant they had like offered and then it was postponed a couple of times because of covid and i was like well i'm actually pregnant now and i i need to bring my three-month-old baby and my partner to the residency which i was supposed to do like alone uh, way earlier and they were like, oh, we're used to having infants <laughs> here. So just bring them. Wonderful. Yeah, that was amazing. And I was, uh, it's called Art Lab Knesta. It's in Sweden. Yeah, it just made me really, really happy and, and grateful that there are people that, that sort of allow these different life situations to, to still be yeah, working with art. The building wasn't necessarily yeah, flexible, like child friendly, but... But they, they were very child friendly and just just we sort of just worked with it and just of course like uh, an artist run space is, you have like limited funding and maybe you can't like do everything but I think like just uh, be generous where where you can and try to find ways to allow different types of 
individuals or family structures to to work. It doesn't just help those uh, those families. It's also enriching for everyone else. Because I I went to a residency where a couple brought their only one of them was an artist, and the other one came along, and then they brought their seven year old son, and he was the closest person in age to me at that time. And he would show up at my door and be like, what can we do together? And then we made a an animation together, like a stop motion animation with his Play-Doh. And I would have like, I would freshly squeeze orange juice for us to sit outside and drink it with wine in wine glasses, or we'd be swimming. So, you know, it was like really fun for me. Some of my fond memories from that time are spending time with him. It was nice because it was all ages. Like there were people who had, there was a writer who had had uh, was on the verge of retirement, so elderly people, and then most most people were actually older than me, and I was thirty uh, at the time, so or thirty one, so I wasn't that young. You know? Oh, <laughs> in in terms of um, what whoever you sort of make space for in the in the arts, it just really creates also different output like what art is actually can is actually available so by making it possible for people in different life situations or backgrounds diagnosis or it all will serve the sort of the output of the art as well to get more a greater range of work diversity uh, yeah a diversity of experiences is bound to give a diversity of work yeah dear Adelaide and Anna In the COVID, quote-unquote, aftermath, I say this with caution because it's not over, I've learned a lot about caring for myself and how to set boundaries for being in a somewhat balanced state, especially when it comes to work and free time and fighting back grind culture. But I found it hard to remain true to self-care once society opened up again. How do I continue with these self-care measures? Lyndon Barwa Jr. I think most of us relate to this. For anyone that knows me, I think they would know I'm really good at free time. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I assign free time uh, when my time isn't free, actually, uh, which is a bit of a problem. Um, I'm really good at chilling. But yeah, <laughs> that's not to say that I don't feel the the pressure of the grind looming over me constantly, especially like when people's activities are so public now. The situation is is such that we we just constantly see how productive people are because they're publicizing it, you know, on social media. And you know, there's always some exhibition opening at you know at whatever scale, with whatever budget, at whatever institution, uh, with whatever fanfare and press, regardless of what crisis is happening in the world, you know. And that's that's like a a weird thing and so if you if you find yourself at a halt or at a standstill or at like a you know a moment of confliction it's like you you get the feeling that you should be able to work through it because other people are but one thing i think yeah the covid non aftermath uh the, the you know the covid present has re- like solidified for me is that like i've i've i don't i don't think i've ever been a person to kind of work constantly and mindlessly you know i always have breaks for myself maybe to a fault but i've never really been into this idea of like mindless production and like amassing like a you know an inventory of work go ahead sorry well no i'm just thinking that maybe so uh, the person asked this question and many more of us could um, figure out how we can tap into this like um, chilling expertise that you got <laughs> can you say, say something about like what do you think it's it's about what, what's what, what is it about your personality or your that makes you such a great at free time oh like just just like being a lazy person you mean um <laughs> no i mean i'm i'm being like crass there but i i 
I'm also speaking from like a, a fairly, you know, a privileged position of like someone who's who's had, op, you know, enough opportunities to keep me busy, you know, throughout this time. Right. And so that has kind of allowed me to establish some kind of structure, you know, for when I can rest and when I absolutely need to work. And it also like has allowed for me to be very specific about the things that I'm making. You know, if I were in a situation where those opportunities weren't available, I would maybe be in a, in a more kind of like a frustrated place of like, because maybe I wouldn't be making anything. Maybe like my attitude and my like sensibility would cause me to kind of put the actual making of things off even further, you know, to in, in like a detrimental way. I'm, I, I'm very fortunate in that. And then I have deadlines, you know, and, and those those deadlines have allowed me to establish some kind of focus. And so which mm. sort of fits into like how uh, how I want to be productive anyway, which is, again, to 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 focus on, again, not grinding aimlessly. But what you need to do if you have something to do, you work hard. If you don't, you relax. Yeah, it's hard to I don't know. It's hard to feel like that's not OK. It's, it's hard, you know, because again, because we see the productivity of other people and it's like, oh, I should be in the studio all the time. I should be cranking things out. You know, I should be like, ne you know, networking and writing people. And, and you know, and, and, I, and I've been in that place even before the pandemic, you know, when, and just watching other people. And, you know, I had a moment where a friend of mine had to really talk me down because I was like, you know, why aren't things happening for me? <laughs> you know, the way they are for other people. Like, I feel like, you know, my work is 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 what it is. And, you know, I feel good about it. And, you know, I, I feel like I work hard, you know, and have a nice like, you know, life work balance. But <laughs> but, you know, should I should I be working harder, you know, and, and ultimately, like, I've realize that it, it it's it's just not healthy and I'm like I'm not a happy person if everything is about work you know I, I need those spaces to like retreat and you know just like watch stuff you know watch basketball highlights you know for extended periods of time like I need those breaks and of course like those things actually become work but not in like a concrete way not in a way that you know they're still fun like they bleed into your work is that what you mean they bleed into my work. Yeah, maybe I borrow from, you know, through the pandemic, I like, like many people, like just watched so many things constantly, right? I took advantage of like every streaming platform available to me as a, as a way to like have like a little self, you know, film school, like a self-education, you know, in, in, in cinema, right? And, you know, that's just like a an interest of mine. That's fun, you know, for me to sort of like retreat into that space. But then, of course, that becomes part of my research and that's you know that's like a particular thing for me but mm. but yeah that's still some that's still a, a, like kind of a, a a space in which I'm I'm like kind of caring for myself right that's where I'm serving like pleasure sensors and not like work mm -hmm. that, that I'm grinding out for the approval of other people so yeah you got to find those things and your work has to be something that you enjoy and that, that's something that I always say to people don't make anything you don't want to make and what if we imagine this person isn't an artist? Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, like they're they're speaking specifically about the world, quote unquote, opening up mm -hmm. and they had reached some kind of balance for themselves during COVID. Like, oh, now that I don't have so many things to do, I start doing these things that are, you know, caring for myself. And then now I'm expected to be back in society and, and time is shaved away from those things. How do I get a balance? Yeah, well, I think that's probably why... Uh why people are quitting their jobs so much right i mean because i yeah it's funny there are varying degrees of like whether a workplace or an employer will will be understandable of that right i i, I it's it's interesting like the things that have have been um revealed to be unnecessary <laughs> throughout, throughout all the throughout all this right like 
being present in an office for eight hours a day when we primarily work on computers. And so, I don't know, yeah, fortunately, I've, you know, encountered lots of people who are able to work from home quite a, quite a lot more. You know, my brother, for instance, you know, works like four days a week from home, which is crazy. Actually, I think, I think, actually, I think he's 100% remote now uh, because... Yeah. So he works four days a week, and that's yeah. really rare in an from yeah, home, yeah. in an American context. Um, that's like unthinkable. But but that's like double edged, right? That's a double edged sword because, like you know, as we know, as artists, like when you have access to a computer, like the possibility of work is always there. <laughs> and so I don't know. There, in some ways, that's probably the bigger challenge, right? It's like if you are working remotely, you know, you're always available, <laughs> and that's that's like that's a whole other issue. But you don't have to be available. I think, like, uh, Outlay, you're very good at um, boundaries. Am I? <laughs> I, am. I think so. Well, like, you're very often like, no, this much, but not, like, for, just till here, but not more. Yeah, you can be really strict about things. Because I'm, I'm very often like, oh, yeah, maybe I should, you know, like, I'm, I, I, I set my mind that I'm going to say no, or I'll be strict, like, I'll, I'll do this and not this. But then if someone asks, like, I just find it really difficult to say no, or I'm just like, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll try, I'll do this. Yeah, I started to, to realize I could do that because um, I, I don't know if I was always this way or if it just happened during COVID, but in my mind, if I have, if you say, like, let's have a call at three, in my mind, that's a big part of my day. So at three, I'm having a call with you. So then, like, I think one time you wrote me and you were like, I'm ready early, you could talk early. And then I was like, I'll be ready in 15 minutes or something. Which was the time we already agreed to. Because <laughs> I was like, no, I need time to lay here and do nothing. Because I, I do that a lot. Like, I find my, there's certain things that I, I get obsessed with. So right now it is like language learning forums. And I have in my mind, like, I have to do this thing at three. And before that, I, you know, I have this amount of time and I want to just lay there and, and read, read these forums and like totally, you know, obsess about a specific thing. Yeah. No, I've, I've observed that about you as well. I think you are, you, you, you are good about establishing boundaries and i think yeah i've seen you put more work into to being diligent about that and really protecting your time and in in doing the work you've agreed to do in the, in the set time you've agreed to do it in you know i think i mean what i was getting to is like before there was this like separation that you could have between like work activity in in a place right it could be specific to a place you can go home and like you leave work at work and now if work is at home, like you have to be more protective of that the free time, more adamant about like what the work time is. And so, yeah, I mean, that's what that's what I was getting to. It just becomes more of a challenge to sort of establish those boundaries when you're in a more kind of flux work environment. I mean, as long as the work's getting done, I mean, there's no reason for you to overdo it. You know, there's no reason for you to give more time than what is expected of you and, and more work than than what is expected of you. Um, I think we're, we're often compelled to like, to overachieve, you know, just to, to sort of like, you know, make good impressions or like, you know, impress people or, or whatever, like that, that makes us look really good, right? It makes us look like, you know, we're, we're good at what we do, but at the same time, like we're, we're in the, in the long term, like in the long run, we'll be unable to be that way if, if we're, if we're burnt out. And so we have to keep that in perspective. There's this subreddit called anti-work. And the, the symbol is like a, you know how they, there's a typical like bat symbol for a human, like for a bathroom or crossing the street or whatever. And the person's like lay, laying down with their hand, <laughs> relaxing. But basically it's all these people, you know, some people are quitting their jobs and they post like a ridiculous text message their boss sent to them. For instance, a woman who said, uh, there was a text message and the boss was like, are you coming in today? And the woman's like, I told you my husband died yesterday. 
I'm not coming in today. And she, and then they're like, oh, we'll see you tomorrow. And she's like, I'm not coming in uh, for a week. See you, you know, in a week from now. It's like the, the inhumanity that comes in relationship to work culture is just sometimes shocking. And then so there some people who can't quit their job, their strategy is just to do as little as possible. They're like, I spend, you know, 45 minutes on Facebook and then I spend 15 minutes on Instagram. <laughs> you know, it's just basically like the Homer Simpson in the in the nuclear factory. Yeah, yeah. There's a and maybe this is another part of like this kind of chill personality I have, but and Adelaide can also relate to this. So when anything that happens that feels like a, a work event or like some kind of it's like a meeting is like an accomplishment <laughs> and it's like an excuse to treat ourselves. <laughs> Whether it's to like a meal or, yeah, <laughs> or, oh man, I had a Zoom meeting. Um, you want to watch a show? You know, it's like, like these little like breaks that are rewards for like a accomplishing like even w a minor task, I think could also perhaps contribute to this like self care <laughs> methodology, you know? Eric Satie Organson. Well, I'm uh, quite a bad candidate for this question because I've been pretty much burnt out for years and uh, I would still say that I'm kind of struggling with burnout and those things because, yeah, oh, no. COVID has been uh, extremely hard and uh, I've been uh, trying to practice self-care for years now. But, I mean, it's like cycles of addiction and self-care and like feeling a bit better and then feeling really, really terribly. And at this point, for like last year or something maybe i think that what i realize is that well if your money has disappeared if you're not sure if you're going to have a place to live if you have no income your business is tanking all that self-care is really difficult because well your situation is objectively terrible and for many people it could always be worse but that's not really going to make you feel that much better even if you're like a fairly comfortable artist on a low income in norway or something like that life is still hard and hard is hard, and it hard is what it feels hard to the person. So if you can prioritize what you feel is working for you when it comes to self-care, that's great. But if your situation around you is really difficult, yeah, if you have to work two jobs and you have a toddler and you can barely sleep and you have no money, then yeah, reading about like, I don't know, bath bombs and yoga and... Uh, hiking like that's not going to be that easy if you're if you have no money and you're stuck in like outside of oslo somewhere and like you have no idea how you're going to pay rent next month so i think if you feel that the self-care bit becomes an obligation and that you're failing yourself when things are hard or when things are easy you don't do it all the time well realize that yeah if i feel a bit worse now it could be because i haven't been doing these uh, self-care rituals uh, or it could just be that my external circumstances have degraded a bit and acknowledging that and realize that yeah there might not necessarily be something that wrong with me it's just that yeah sometimes external factors is going to make life difficult and if you feel bad when things are really difficult there's nothing wrong with you it just means that things are bad and maybe they will get better so uh I think that, yeah, if you have strategies that work for yourself, I know that some things help me, but I can't always do them. Sometimes because I don't have the money, I don't have the time, and it's just not possible. And uh, sometimes I'll feel okay, and sometimes I'll feel much worse. But I also know that, well, 
with these external circumstances that exist right now, there's a limit to how much I can do to make myself feel better without, you know, stopping short of injecting heroin. So uh, since uh, I've taken that off the table, uh, I'm not going to, you know, always feel great right now. And that doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. It just means that things are tough. They might get better. When I was reading this question, I didn't even uh, I didn't even think of it from from that perspective of like somebody's life, um, you know, like the struggle to take care of yourself when everything's falling apart. I kind of saw it as someone had found some kind of balance in all the um, reduced amount of activities that they had to do, and then as the world quote unquote opened up, they felt pulled or compelled to attend social events and do things that maybe in the time away from it they realize they don't want to do so much anymore i mean i'm feeling this too like um i'm not ready to be doing a lot of things that people have been doing for like the past year kind of socializing and things like that i think a lot of people had time to sit back and think like what do i want because a lot of times you just go with the flow of life so to me i saw it as like somebody who wants to step back from that just predetermined way they should behave in, in it socially and spend more time with themselves. But they feel like they need to, because they mentioned the word grind culture, the phrase grind culture, it made me think that they feel like they need to be at all these, like thinking from an artist's perspective, like you need to be at all these openings, you need to be seen, you need to talk to people, you need to make sure people know you're still there. Mm. So it's like another, like what you said adds a whole nother layer to it, like just the basic struggle of life and the hard times that people go through. And then on top of that, like the social expectations of an artist. I'm very, you know, familiar with the social expectations of a, a life in the art world. And I think that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's definitely a perspective that I think a lot of artists uh, have at least like gone through over the last couple of years. And I think a simple answer there is that, well, you don't have to attend all these openings. And in the end, if you don't want to, you, you, sh you shouldn't. And uh, I work with some artists who uh, attend no openings. Their uh, interaction with the art world, and like with the official art world in a way, is through me. And that is a role that I fulfill for some artists, and that uh, works uh, fine for them. And like the results uh, have been great. And the thing is that if you genuinely find those things stressful and it takes away from your practice and it damages your mental health or it makes you just makes you feel shitty because you're tired and you don't have time and you lose time in the studio and all of that, then I mean, the ideal thing would be to find someone to work with who could kind of take over that role for you. Whether that is a gallery, whether it's uh, some sort of advisor. There's, there's loads of people in the art world who do things that can like outsource those things for you and uh, if you have commercial ambitions at the end of the day maybe you need that anyway now of course there's loads of artists who can't get gallery representation maybe don't want it for plenty of reasons and then you also don't have to go to all of these openings because maybe you can schedule like two days uh, in a month where you see the shows that you think are important to see and maybe at the same time you can schedule a few coffee meetings with some artists, go by the studio. In the end, they're like drinking a glass of wine and talking about whatever while smoking a pack of cigarettes at, a, at a, an opening, which is what I usually do, or used to do at least. That isn't that useful, especially for an artist, because for me as an advisor, yeah, that was a big part of my job, especially in London, for example, going to cocktails and going to dinners and going to you know cafe royale with collectors all of that stuff was a big part of it because if you don't do it yeah you don't have access to those people they don't know you they're certainly not going to accept your uh, recommendations they're not going to buy stuff from you but artists 
I mean, from the inside there, the artists who went to the like top tier galleries, parties, and that were like emerging, they were looked upon as you know a bit sad in a way. Like like they were the druggies. They were the ones who were not doing that well, and they were seen as a bit tryhard because uh, in the end, like you're not going to as an artist achieve something useful at 2 or 3 a.m. in a you know London bathroom except doing another line of coke that's it and that's a big part of it in London and uh, it's a big part of it in Paris too but uh, it's not going to get you that big show it's certainly not going to get you an artistic breakthrough like yeah you might get to know some of the people at the galleries a bit better but that doesn't lead to shows doesn't lead to bodies of work so yeah you might feel like you're part of the art world in a different way because you get to know some really famous people but it doesn't help your career in any meaningful way because yeah doing a line with someone famous could feel cool at the time but it's not going to get you a show and it's certainly not going to make you a great artist so long term stay home I hope for this listener's sake, though, that uh, that's not necessarily what they can uh, think of uh, when they're referring to grind culture and uh, <laughs> and not being and worrying about not um, continuing the self care that they're sort of the or the balance they've found during COVID. But either way, what kind of um, stress or this, uh, the unbalanced state that they refer to before the pandemic? I do think, though, that maybe it could be useful to try to define or like see like what what do you actually mean by self-care as you said that uh, it's horrible if that also just becomes something that you have to do you know like another task oh I should be doing this to take care of myself but then rather think of like what am I actually doing that is working for me and as things will open up and change like what do I need to do with my old routines to make sure I create space for for that type of yeah if you call it self-care or whatever you call it, that makes uh, your life feel more balanced. I feel like um, COVID hit right when I was realizing myself that I was doing too much. And it, like, forced me not to. Because I'd been flying all over the world and doing, you know, like, I was supposed to come to Norway to do the uh, third season of the podcast. And and I, in some ways, I wasn't relieved there was a pandemic. But in some ways, like, with all the things that I had to do and the nonstop action that I was having it was kind of nice to suddenly even though it was scary I was like I don't know I didn't have a home I ended up living with my sister and like not knowing where where the where money was going to come from and things like that but at the same time I was like now I get to just do nothing for a while like I don't have to be anywhere and anything that I do is just going to be on my own time and schedule and for the most part yeah because I was probably going to reach burnout there's certain things that I've kept from that time like I wasn't getting many emails so now I Sorry to everyone who's waiting on an email from me, <laughs> but I just, you know, if I don't have to write back right away, if it doesn't seem urgent, I'm not going to do it. And like, oh, can I just ask, what do you do? How do you remember to re- reply when you don't reply? It's just going to take a while. I mean, there's one person I it, I wrote them a year a year later. <laughs> How do you know that you haven't replied? But I never even open it or I mar- I mark it as unread. Like I'll read it and be like, OK, can you do this later? And I mark it as unread. Ah, OK. Yeah. If it's not like. We're talking to you on the podcast tomorrow. Like I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna read it or, you know, some one person wrote me and was like, "Are you not checking your email?" It was the next day. I was like, "Whoa!" Like you haven't written me in a while because I do not write back the next day. Like if it's just not urgent, she's like, "Are you not checking your email?" <laughs> like, actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> I got a text message too. But anyway, there's certain things that I've just 
let loose. Like I used to constantly, constantly apply to things and I've kind of just let deadlines slide by and I thought it would feel horrible because it used to when I was like, oh, I just can't get to it. I just can't do that. And that probably comes from having some kind of security because I'm at a residency that pays me. If I was in a different mm. situation, I'd probably still be hustling and have no time for even deciding what's what feels healthy to me and what doesn't. So like like Eric was saying, it's just it depends on your life circumstance and what you mean by self-care and whether you're even able to do those things, whether those things cost money or or cost time that you don't have. Because like you mm. said, if you have a toddler running around in two jobs, you, you it's not a bubble bath's not going to solve your your problems. I'm really glad that you brought up sort of the external circumstances because sometimes like when everything feels shit um, and it can be easy to forget that it's actually not necessarily you that are shit. It's just like a lot of shitty things all around that can cause you to feel shit but maybe you're fine. I mean not feeling fine but you can't take on that sort of responsibility. Yeah, because for example, when uh, when lockdowns first hit, I was separated from my daughter and my partner for uh, six months in Norway because uh, yeah. I couldn't go back to France uh, and be let back into Norway with any certainty, with quarantines and all that. So to have any kind of income, I basically had to stay in Norway for six months and not see them. And then when I went back to France uh, after that, then uh, last year it became incredibly difficult for me to go to Norway because uh, my partner wasn't allowed in the country because we're not married. Uh, so uh, she couldn't come with me. And uh, I couldn't go to Norway for a long time because the quarantine hotels would make it so expensive and take so much time that it was practically impossible for me to uh, both work and see my family. So since I was in France at that moment, and uh, I chose to stay in France, but that also meant that I had no income for months and months and months. But I didn't want to go another six months without seeing my daughter. So that was like a very specific thing. Six months is a long time in a child's life. Yeah, and she's she was uh, she was uh, quite young at the time. I mean, she's uh, six this year. So uh, yeah, that was a huge change. And uh, I've missed uh, milestones before because I have to travel for work a lot. Like I'm dependent on flying like a lot because there is absolutely no art scene around where I live here in the French countryside. And uh, there's, there's not much to do at all. So uh, if I can't travel and if my partner isn't allowed into Norway because of restrictions, yeah, then things become really difficult. And yeah, I wasn't feeling great during that time. You don't have to look that hard to find out why. So it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, there's, that there's something wrong with you. You're just, just like, yeah, situation is shit. Hopefully it'll get better. Yeah. The Friends season of Ask Adelaide and Anna was commissioned for The Real Show at Cac Bretigny. Curated by Agnès Violo and Céline Poulin. And is supported by OCA, the Office for Contemporary Art Norway and Stavanger Municipality. Thanks to Anna's neighbor, Benjamin, who was so kind to record his cats chatting for us to use in our jingles this season. Thanks for listening.